turn with me to Deuteronomy chapter 7. And we're continuing our study of who is Jesus. And in this study, we've seen that He is, according to God's own testimony about Him, He is the Christ, the Anointed One. He is the Son of the living God. We've looked at the significance that it means to us that God sent His Son to this earth. And the first thing we saw that it meant is it tells us how much God loves us. That He didn't give us the the, the least that He had to do, but He literally gave His own Son's life in your place. And that's a direct measure of how valuable you are to Him. You may not feel that valuable to you. You may not feel that valuable to anybody else. But God's Word says you are that valuable to Him. And we have to receive that by faith. The second thing we've seen is that that means that God literally came in the flesh. So that when we see Jesus, we see God. And, that, and what you think of Him, what you respond, your response to Jesus is your response to God. Because in Jesus, God took on flesh and dwelt among us. God became specific. He became concrete. And the third thing is, which is what we're looking at now, is the Bible, therefore, Jesus, and Jesus' own testimony about himself, is if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. If this is God in the flesh, then we can find out what God's like by looking at Jesus and what he did. And what we began to look at is we saw that Jesus didn't hold things back. Jesus wasn't trying to find out how little to give or how little to do. He was trying to do as much and as blessed. He he healed, he restored wherever there was suffering, wherever there was bondage, wherever those things were brought to him, he delivered people and set them free. Now, he didn't heal everybody and he didn't deliver every kind of bondage. He only did it for those that came, in most cases, that came to him and asked. So we see in this, that there's a characteristic of God, because if you look at Jesus, you can see what God's like. There's a characteristic of God that's very different than at least what I was raised in church. The God that I was raised to believe in in church was distant. He was sitting on a throne up there, ready to judge. And he was waiting for us to step out line. If you stepped out line, you crossed his line, you were in big trouble. And then I began to read my Bible and discover that we're all in big trouble, (laughs) apart from him. But instead of sitting on a throne up there waiting to judge us, he literally came to this earth to pay the price so that he could forgive us. Not just forgive us, but he could also bless us. And so we began to see as we looked at Jesus that he didn't hold things back. We saw, for instance, that there was nobody that came to Jesus and asked to be healed or delivered that he ever said no to. And if he is the perfect example of what God's like, and God's the same yesterday, today, and forever, then that's what God's like today. He's not different today. Not only that, the Bible teaches us that the covenant you and I live under is a better covenant with better, based on better promises. It says that the covenant of the Old Testament, which we're going to look at this morning, the covenant of the Old Testament is a mere shadow of the good things to come. When's the last time you saw your shadow? Which has more substance, your shadow or you? You do. There's an old expression, the shadow of a dog never bit anybody. Right. right? But a dog has. <laughs> so the Old Testament was just a shadow. It was a, it, was a, it was a vague image of the real that is to come. So we began last week to look in the Old Testament to see if this God that we're talking about, who is generous, who's not holding anything back, one of the things we looked at Jesus is, is see, God, God doesn't put limits. Now, He has a will, obviously, He's not, you know, his will is you shall not commit adultery, you can't lie. You know, those, the Ten Commandments are the Ten 
commandments, not suggestions. And they haven't changed. Actually, they've been, they've been rolled up in two. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your might. And the second is you shall love your neighbors yourself. You do those two things and you'll keep all ten of them. But by saying what I'm saying, God didn't just take the limits. says, oh, no, you can do whatever you want. That's kind of the world's view right now. And what really concerns me is it's crept into the church. Well, we can live any way we want. We can do anything we want because God loves us. There's a belief out there. There are books been written out there by Pat. There really is no hell because God would never create a hell. He needs to read his Bible. You cannot base what you believe in what people think or some book that's written unless it's the one that's in your lap. See, if, my view is this. God, if he's going to hold us responsible and he's a just and fair God, then he's got to tell us ahead of time what he expects. So he's got to have given us something on which we can rely to, to base our lives on so that we can understand Him and what He requires. And that's what that book is, the Bible. He hasn't ordained any other book to do that, but the one that's in your lap, that Bible, is a gift, is God's Word spoken to us to give us His instructions and to reveal what He's like. And that's what we're looking at. So I was raised in a church that had the image that God, you know, He would do what He had to do, but He, you know, He would, He, He, He would, He would do as little as He had to do, because the people in my life basically did that too. But we see as Jesus walked around, among the earth, as God walked in flesh, He wasn't like that at all. He wasn't finding how little He had to do; He was finding how much He could do for people. So I showed you there was in Jesus's life. There's not any example where he criticized anybody for trying to believe too much. See, I was raised, you know, well, you don't want, that's too much to believe. You don't want to believe that. I mean, that's, that's, that's presuming on God to believe that God would do those things. But I don't find Jesus doing that. I don't find Jesus saying, you know, brethren, you believe, Peter, you know, when you, you said, can I walk on water with you? And that's not reserved for you. That's only reserved for me. Instead, I saw Jesus say, Come. In fact, the only time Jesus corrected his disciples or really came down on them is because they believed too little, not that they believed too much. So we're looking at this aspect of God that he's a God that's much more than you can imagine, whereas we may say that, but our attitude is often he's much less. He's just enough. Maybe he'll be there for me. I know he was there last month, but I don't know if he'll provide for me this month. After all, God doesn't want us to have too much because He wants to keep us humble. That's not what humility is. That's poverty, not humility. Did you find Deuteronomy 7? All right. Well, last week we looked at God coming, God creating the world and how He created it. It was a place of abundance. And then He created a special place called Eden, a garden, which He put in there special delights, special blessings. And then He put the man He created and the woman in that place of, of Eden, of delights, and he told them, enjoy In fact, in some translations, he commanded them to enjoy it. That doesn't fit the image I grew up with God, commanding you to enjoy something. I thought he doesn't want us to enjoy anything. But he commanded them to enjoy it, and, and he didn't have a bunch of rules, you can't do this and you can't do that. He said, eat everything you want, and as much as you want. Doesn't that sound good? This is in the garden now. <laughs> There's only one thing you can't do. 
And it was one tree they couldn't eat of, and one of the reasons for that is it was God's way of telling them, you're stewards of this, but you don't own it. You can't do everything you want. There's a one, there is a limit. But within that limit, enjoy it. Then we went over into God establishing a people through a man named Abram. And we saw God come to him and enter into a covenant with him. Not so that God would keep his word, so that Abraham could have confidence that God would keep his word. We saw what that covenant was, and we saw that as soon as Abraham grasped at what God was doing with him, because God had never entered into a covenant with man before. Men entered into covenants with each other, but God had never entered into a covenant like this with a man. And Abraham caught it because he said, what do I get? And he got specific, since my wife and I have no child. And the problem was they were past childbearing age and she was barren in addition. And God says to him, come here. And we saw this, how he brought Abraham out because Abraham's asking, maybe I can get a child out of this in my old age. And God brings Abraham out because Abraham's thinking too small and catches him, gets to, tells him to look at the stars of the sky. And then God says, that's the number of your descendants. We saw that Abraham came hoping he could have one child and God wants to expand his vision. Why? Because God's a God of much more. Abraham thought in terms of much less. Now we're going to fast forward because what's happened is God established this nation through Abram. He gave him Isaac and then Isaac grows up and we have the, the age of the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and then Jacob. And then we have the 12 sons of Jacob and in, in, in Israel, this, this special people is prospering and God's blessing them, but a famine's coming. So he sends Joseph into Egypt to prepare for the famine. And then when the, when the famine comes, Joseph is already prime minister and, and already has a relief program going. And now God brings his people down into there and Joseph provides for his own family and takes care of them and 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 the, but the problem as you get into Exodus is you discover that they overstayed their need to be there. You know God can bless you in something and then you get comfortable in it and you begin to trust and rely on the place you are that he's using to bless you. It could be a job. You could have trusted God for a job. Get in that job, God's blessing you through that job, and now what happens is you start putting your confidence in the job I've done it. And then stop trusting in the God that gave it to you. And that's what happened in essence to them. Because the Bible says in chapter 1 of of Exodus that they were more and mightier than the Egyptians. So how can they be held in bondage against their will when there's more of them and they're mightier? They had to be held there because they wanted to stay. They got comfortable, they got lazy, they got used to being there, and gradually they yielded their will over to the Egyptian king who was Pharaoh and now they are in a bondage and when they are there long enough after about 400 years they cry out to God for deliverance and this is to show you what this much more God's like he's already got the deliverer called trained and disciplined and ready to go when they called out and that was 80 years of preparation 40 years in Pharaoh's court and then 40 years in God's court which was the wilderness Sometimes God's court is the wilderness. His training place is a wilderness, not a palace. I wish it were always a palace, but sometimes you learn more in the wilderness 
when it's just you and God than you do in the palace when it's you, God, and the servants and the, and the, you know, the good food and everything else and, you know, all the rest of that. And so, but what I want you to see is this, when the people were ready, and they, see, God often waits till you're ready. Amen. God would have delivered them earlier. But he waited for them to ask. We know that because Moses, 40 years earlier, who's the deliverer, Moses, 40 years earlier, he already knows he's the deliverer. Forget the movies. It makes, you know, makes for entertainment, but it's not based on the scriptures. Because then, you know, the, whatever it was, the Ten Commandments, Moses didn't realize he was the deliverer. First of all, every Jewish male was circumcised on the eighth day. The Egyptians weren't. So right there he knew there was something different. Secondly, he was raised by his mother. That shows you what God can do. Uh, I, I'm going to take a little side journey. It's not my notes. But, but God's plan ahead of time is to deliver this people because he knows the trouble they're going to get in. You need to listen to this because he's the same God today. He knows what they're going to do. He, he knows you. <laughs> he knows the mistakes you're going to make. And because he loves you, he'll prepare the deliverance for your mistakes if you'll just stay still long enough and go to him for the deliverance. So Moses knows he's the deliverer, but in his thinking, he looks at himself and goes, hey, I'm the deliverer. Because what happened is, is Pharaoh decides he wants to kill all the, Egyptian, the, the, the Jewish males because he's afraid of the prophecies. So he orders an edict to kill every Jewish male, and Moses' mother, by the grace of God, and his father place him in this basket, put him... Oh, this is another message. Oh. They took their dear child... You might want to pull your toes in. And they let him go to God. They took their dear child because God had a destiny for him. And they stopped holding on to him and they let him go into God's hands. Mothers and fathers, there has to come a point where you let that precious child into the hands of the one who made him and created him or her and who has a purpose for their life because you can get in God's way. They, I'll, I'll, that's the end of that one. I'll let it, they let him go and Pharaoh's daughter sees him, thinks he's cute, pulls him aside. This is shows you how God can do things. See, we think God's so limited. And she takes him out. Now, in this mother's mind, she's lost her child, but she gave him up to God. She let him go. See, you cannot outgive God. You cannot trust Him and give to God your life, your family. You cannot entrust things to God without God doing something back. You, it, it, it's God's nature. That's what we're talking about. God's nature is, is to outgive you. His nature, His heart is to bless you, not hurt you. And so in her mind, their son's gone, but she gave him to God, so she's trusting God, trusting Him to God. And there's a knock at her door one day. Because they're looking for a woman who is nursing, still in a nursing mode to nurse this baby that now Pharaoh's daughter has adopted. And guess who they choose? Mama. So now, when God's done, she's let go of her son, but instead of being killed, instead of living in poverty, he's now in Pharaoh's palace, and she's living with him 
nursing him and taking care of him just like she was before, but now under Pharaoh's protection and Pharaoh's provision and Pharaoh's blessing. So the second reason he knew he was a deliverer, not only was he circumcised, but his mama raised him. You don't think she told him some things? So he gets to be about 40 years old, decides to go out and visit his, 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 family, his relatives, and he goes out there, and you know the story, he sees some fighting, and, and then later comes back, and, he see, and an Egyptian guard comes in. Excuse me, the first day he sees an Egyptian guard beating one of them, so he kills a guard, buries him in the sand, the next day he comes back and he sees two of the Hebrew brothers fighting and he starts to step in between them and they turn to him and say, well, who do you think you are? And Moses says, all right, I'm the deliverer, let's go. Nobody's following. Why? They weren't ready. They weren't ready. Did they need deliverance? Oh, yeah. Had God provided a deliverer? Oh, yeah. But they weren't ready in their hearts to leave where they were as difficult and as uncomfortable as it was. They weren't ready in their hearts to be delivered yet. There may be areas of your life right now where you've been tolerating things and putting up with things in your own life, just bondages, fear. Fear is so devastating. Fear paralyzes. Fear limits vision. I mean, it can physically limit your vision. But it limits your spiritual vision. Condemnation, it may be things out of your past that still have a hold on you. God's already provided your deliverance. But He's waiting for you to get tired of where you are and be willing to step out and say, I want to be free. I want to be free. I want to be free. But you won't do that if you don't have confidence that God's going to respond and is already ready to free you. And that's what we're looking at. Forty years later, they had it. But Moses has now finished the second part of his training, and he's ready. And so Moses comes, and you know the story, they're delivered, they come, finally they come out of Egypt, through amazing miracles, we're not going to take the time to go over those this morning, and they get out into the, into the, into the desert. So in order to go from Egypt, there's a land God has promised them. He's described it to them. It's a land flowing with milk and honey. It's a land filled with all kinds of riches and prosperity and blessings, and that's the place that God wants to have them go. It's the land He has promised to them. But to get there, they've got to go through a wilderness. Now, the Bible tells us it was a much shorter route that took about less than two weeks. But God said, I can't take them that way because when they go that way, they're going to see the Canaanites. And when they see the Canaanites, they're going to panic. And since God knows us. They're going to see the Canaanites, and I know them. They're going to panic, and they're going to run back to Egypt. See, God wanted them in the place of blessing more than they wanted to get there. God wanted to bless them more than they wanted to receive it. And they were basically afraid, 
and they were basically had their hearts still so much in Egypt and God's trying to draw them out so that he can take care of them and bless them. That's the heart of God. So he knows, he says, I can't take them by the short route. I've got to take them through this other route that's easier. It's longer. There may be some things in your life where you're still going around, you're going through something over and over and over again, and you don't know why you're still stuck in it. It may be there's a shorter route, but God knows He can't take you that way. God knows how to get you there. He knew how to get two million plus rebellious Israelites somewhere they really didn't want to go. And He knew how to get them there. So He does that. They go through this time, they get through a year, takes them a year. They get over to the edge of the promised land, send 12 spies in, they come back saying, everything God said about this land is exactly true and we have evidence of it. But there's something God didn't tell us. There are giants in the land. There's fierce warriors in the land. Well, why didn't God tell them that? Because to God, those are not an issue. Because God said, I'll drive out all the inhabitants before you. And what happens is they listened. This is in Numbers 13 and 14. They listened. The people listened out of those 12 spies. Ten of them, they all 12 agreed that everything God said about the land was true. But ten of them said, but there are obstacles there that are going to keep us from doing what God says we can do. There are obstacles there that are going to keep us from receiving what God says He's given to us. There were two, Joshua and Caleb, They said, I don't care what we saw. God's well able to give us what he said he'll give us. And the Bible calls that report of those ten spies an evil report. And the people listened to the ten spies and not the two, Joshua and Caleb. They listened to the men who walked by sight and not the two who walked by faith in what God said. And the result is that God literally gave them what they said. They said, you brought God, over and over again, they said, God's brought us out here in the wilderness to die. And in essence, God gave them what they said. Because God said, all right, I can't take you into that land. Because if I take you in that land, you'll panic and you'll die. So I've got to protect you by keeping you in the wilderness, which was not my will for you. See, the wilderness became a protection for them. Because they were not men and women of faith to walk in and face the obstacles and say, I don't care what the obstacle looks like, God said, we're able. And because they were a people that were so moved by their senses, God had to keep them in the wilderness because otherwise they would have been destroyed in a land that God had promised to them. So for 40 years they remained going around in the wilderness until that whole generation that came out of Egypt died. The people that had Egypt in them had to die in the wilderness because that unbelief had to die. And then the generation that was not born in Egypt but was born in the wilderness that did not have the smells of Egypt, that had not seen the gods of Egypt, that did not have that as their background instilled in them, that generation God said, I can now bring in. But before he did, God brings them all around again 40 years later to the same spot where they were in 40 years earlier. Now God has Moses go back and rehearse the history of what had happened before and tell them again what God's provision is. That's what the book of Deuteronomy is. So we're going to pick up here now.
in chapter 7, because there are things he said before this, including reiterating the commandments that God gave Moses on the mountain. Deuteronomy chapter 7. We're going to start in verse 12. I want you to listen to this carefully. Then it shall come to pass, because you listen to these judgments, that's the commandments, the Ten Commandments, and keep and do them, look what God will do, that the Lord your God will keep with you the covenant and the mercy which He swore to your fathers. See, some people, if you don't understand the Old Testament, you'll think, well, the Old Testament, I don't like the Old Testament because the God of the Old Testament is, is an angry God, a God of judgment. There's no The Old Testament is full of mercy. It's full of mercy. Even the story I just told you is a story of mercy. God's trying to get people. See, we think God can just do what He wants to do. Well, He can with the universe. The one thing He cannot do what He wants to do with is you. Because He gave you a free will. So in spite of what God wants to do for you, you can still say no. In spite of the fact that God doesn't want you to go to hell, but wants you to live for eternity with Him, you can say no. He'll plead with you, woo you, do whatever they can, but He will not violate your free will. He did everything He could with them, but He couldn't violate their will. So now He's talking to the second generation. And this is what He promised, verse 13. And He will love you and bless you and multiply you. I did a study yesterday. I've studied before. But I did a study again on this word bless in the Old Testament. There are several words, but the basic word is barak, B-A-R-A-C-K. And literally the word means to bow your knee. So in essence, it is the God who can do anything, owns everything, coming down and bowing before us. Not as worship, but as making himself available. And here's what this word encompasses. To bless in the Old Testament means to endue with power for success. So when God says, I'm blessing you, he's enduing, and when God endues, that means gives injects, pours into you. When God endues you with something, you're endued. <laughs> you're endued, dude. <laughs> it means to endue with power. That's God's ability for success. I wasn't taught that in church. I was taught God doesn't want you successful because then you'll be proud. To endure with power for success, oh, this is another, prosperity, fruitfulness. That means producing offspring, not just children, but being, but, but being fruitful, accomplishing things, leaving, leaving things behind you that are good. Being fruitful. But somewhere in the back of my mind, I remember vaguely in that garden, God saying something to that first man and woman about being fruitful and multiplying. He didn't say, hold on to what you got because you, you might lose it. He said, you're commissioned 
to be successful, to be fruitful, to multiply, not just add, multiply. In other words, leave more than you started with. means to endure with power for success, for prosperity, for fruitfulness. You're going to like this one. For longevity. What it said. Now look at the rest of it. That's in the word. He will love you and bless you. It says, it's be one thing that you're going to bless us, but he's going to first of all, Love you. Because everything... I'll give you a key to understand your Bible. Everything God does, He does out of love. Why? Because He is love. And He cannot do something apart from Himself. So everything He does is love. Now, I may not understand how it's love, but i got to start with the assumption it's love because God is love. Now I can begin to understand it. On the other hand, God gets accused of all kinds of things He didn't do. Because there's some Christian authors I really enjoy, but some of the older ones get this attitude, well, you know, part of God's love for you is He'll take you through things that are difficult because you'll learn something through them. And, and the wilderness is one of them. But never do I find sickness and disease. See, what they're basically saying was, whatever you go through must be God's will. But that leaves out what the Bible says that there's a God of this world and it's not Jehovah God. That God gave authority, His authority over this creation to Adam. Adam turned in that garden and gave that authority to Lucifer who was then Satan. And the Bible says in several places that Satan is the God of this world. That means He rules and reigns over this world. That's why Colossians 1.13 says, when you come to Christ, you're delivered out of the dominion, the rulership, the authority, the power of darkness, and you're transferred over into the kingdom of His beloved Son. That can't happen if there isn't a kingdom of darkness ruling and reigning here. So some of the bad stuff that happens... Some of it's because we just don't do what we're supposed to do. I mean, if you sit down in one, Route 195 and have a picnic and you get run over, it's not God's fault and it's not the devil. It's your stupidity. And that's kind of extreme, but we do things sometimes. Should I meddle here? We'll put things in our body over and 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 over again. And then when we get sick, we said, the devil made me sick. I could pick on other things. We better move on. (laughs) He'll love you and bless you and multiply you. He will also bless the fruit of your womb. That's your children. 
Many are struggling with children and grandchildren that are not serving God, that are all kinds of trouble. God's promise, His will, His blessing is that you, He will bless the fruit of your womb and the fruit of your land, that's your work, and your grain and your new wine and your oil, the increase of your cattle, the offspring of your flock. Now, we don't, most of us have those things. It's your work. In the land which your father swore to give you, you shall be blessed above all peoples. There shall be not one male or female barren among you or among your livestock. Look at verse 15. And the Lord will take away from you all sickness. All. Well, I don't know if it's God's... The Lord... This is the Old Testament now. This is the Old Covenant. So I said earlier, we're under a, a new covenant with better promises. All I know is when they have labor negotiations, the unions are not looking for a better contract that means we make less money and have fewer benefits. Well, we come to our rank and file and say, we've negotiated this better contract for you. Remember the, the, the health insurance you used to have? It's gone. But it's a better contract. You know what would happen. I mean... Why is it we understand what better means in the rest of our life? It's really simple. But when we get to church, better gets turned upside down. Come on now. And the Lord will take away from you, some translations say, out of your midst. All. The word all means all. Sickness. All, we're talking about the nature of God. All sickness. Now, go with me to Deuteronomy 28. I'm taking time to go through this because we're renewing our minds to what God's basic character is like. Now, this is the end of Moses' review of everything before they enter the promised land. And I'm not going to go through all this. I may, I'll read down through some of it. When they, people entered into a covenant in those days, they would end it by reciting the blessings that they had agreed on by this entering into this covenant and the curse that would come if you broke it. And that's really what this is. This is a recitation of the blessing that comes by being under this covenant and obeying it. Verse 1. Now it shall come to pass, if you will diligently obey the voice of the Lord your God, to observe carefully all His commandments which I command you today, then the Lord your God will set you high above all the nations of the earth. Everybody else is trying to climb to that place. God will set you there. And all, it's called favor. It's called favor. And all... These blessings. We're talking about God's nature. Is God in heaven with an eyedropper trying to figure out how little you need that He can give you? All these blessings shall over, come upon you and overtake you. You won't have to go looking for them. 
they'll come to you and run you over. Because you obey the voice of the Lord your God. Blessed shall you be in the city. Blessed shall you be in the country. Blessed shall be the fruit of your body, the produce of the ground, on and on. Blessed shall be your basket and your kneading bowl. Blessed, no, your food your, shall be blessed. Your house shall be blessed. This, this covers you. Blessed shall you be when you come in, and blessed shall you be when you go out. Yeah. Anything else in between is not blessed. <laughs> you're blessed when you're awake, and you're blessed when you're asleep. Otherwise, you're in trouble. The Lord will cause your enemies who rise up against you to be defeated before your face. And they shall come out against you one way and flee seven ways. The Lord will command. I like it when God commands things. The Lord will command. Now, there's some things I like as commanding. <laughs> See, we, 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 we like this commanding. But the commandments, we look at as suggestions. You can't have it both ways. (laughs) The Lord will command the blessing on you in your storehouses. That's your bank accounts. And all that you set your hand. And He will bless you in the land which the Lord your God is giving you. It goes on and on and on. Blessing after blessing after blessing after blessing. Turn me to Psalm 28. Uh, Excuse me, Psalm 81. Now, we told you the story of what happened with the first generation that came out. God sees them in trouble. He has to wait for them to cry out for deliverance. But God didn't sit by just twiddling his thumbs saying, boy, I can't wait for these turkeys to get this straight. God already had their deliverer prepared and waiting. When they cry out, he's prepared. God's ready. God's ready. He's ready for you to cry out. He's ready. When you're, crying, when you're ready, He's ready. And God sent them, delivered them. We've seen this story now. We've seen this first generation that God brought out. He's pleading with them, receive this blessing that I have for you. And they look at it and say, because it doesn't look like, we, it looks like you know, there may be obstacles. We don't know that we can handle that. And they pull back. And this is God's side of that. Psalm 81 is God's heart. This is the heart of God. Verse 8, Hear, O my people, and I will admonish you, O Israel, if you will listen to me. There shall be no foreign god among you, nor shall you worship any foreign god. I am the Lord you God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt. Open your mouth wide, and I will fill it. We're talking about God's nature. Is He a God of much less, or a God much, much more? Open your mouth wide, and I will fill it. In other words, to the degree that you make room, I'll fill it. You determine how much I can give you. Open your mouth wide and I will fill it. Notice we have to open up first. We want to see how much it is and then I'll open up enough to receive it. No, we've got to open up first. All right. Verse 11, listen to the heart here. But my people would not heed my voice, and Israel would have none of me. So I gave them over to their own stubborn heart to walk in their own, count, in their own counsels. It wasn't God's punishment. I gave them over to their own counsels. You know, if you push him, he'll let you do what you want to do. You get to the point where he knows you won't listen, he'll say, all right, just do what you want to do. 
Look at verse 13. Oh, that my people would listen to me. That Israel would walk in my ways. Why? Because then I would soon subdue their enemies and turn my hand against their adversaries. The haters of the Lord would pretend submission to me and their fate would endure forever. Oh, he would have fed them with the finest of wheat and the honey from the rock, I would have satisfied you. God's crying out here saying, you robbed me of the opportunity to satisfy my heart's desire, which was not just to feed you with bread and water and quail in the wilderness, but I wanted to feed you with the finest of honey, the finest of barley. I wanted to satisfy your every desire. I wanted to bless you so much beyond what you could imagine. That's what I wanted to do, but you wouldn't listen to me. We're looking at who God, what God's like, what his, what his will is, what his heart is like. Because as we've looked at before, when you come to him, the Bible says your confidence of, what you're, of the way you come to him is based on what you think of him. That's why Jesus said in Mark eleven twenty two, have faith in God. See, faith is simple. It's what you think of God. What you think he'll do, is he listening to you? If he listens, is he caring? If he's caring, what will he do? And here we're hearing God's heart. His heart's broken. He wanted to pour out on them blessings that they couldn't contain, but they wouldn't listen to him. As parents, have you ever experienced that? There were things you wanted to do for your kids, but they wouldn't listen to you. It's like something, you know, if you'll just do this, if you clean your room up, then I'll take you out because there's, there's, I want to take you for ice cream. I want to have a special day, but you need to clean your room up. And you're out there, hope, oh, please clean your room because I want to do this for you. I want to do this for you. Don't rob me of the joy of blessing you, my child. But you've got to do what I told you to do first. Let's look at a couple more examples in the Old Testament and then we may get into the New Testament today. 2 Samuel chapter 12. Go back to the left. He's a much more God. Not much less. He's a much more God. We fast forward now. Children of second generation has come into the promised land. God has given them a prophet named Samuel. God wants to be their king. He wants to guide them and provide for them. And they come to Samuel one day and say, we look around us and all the other nations have a king, someone they can see. We want one. And Samuel was very upset at this because God was their king. By the way, there was a principle in those days, and it really is true today, is that the prosperity of the nation depends on the righteousness of the leaders. And God wanted to be their leader. Compare his righteousness with the righteousness of the kings around him. Remember, God formed this nation because he wanted it to be an example to reveal what he's like. And he said to Samuel, all right, they want a king? Let them have a king. I'll give them a king. Tell them what it's going to cost them. And so the first king is Saul. Saul rebels against God. And now God appoints a second king, David. And David is now king here, and he's, he's, he's in full authority. 
And what's happened is David's got a little lazy, and at a time when kings go out to war, in other words, he stayed home. He wasn't where he was supposed to be. Most of the time we get in trouble is because we're not where we're supposed to be. He was home, and he got up on the, on the roof of the palace, and he's looking around, and he looks across the way, and there's Bathsheba. And she's sunning herself, taking a bath on the roof, and his flesh gets a hold of him, and you know the story. He brings her to himself. He, he commits adultery with her. She lets him know later on she's pregnant. He arranges for her husband to come back, Uriah, and in essence arranges for him to be killed on the battlefield. So not only has he committed adultery, he's committed murder. This chapter is where God confronts him through the prophet Nathan. God has now confronted him by telling him a story. Here again, God knows us. So instead of Nathan coming to him and says, you've sinned by doing this, Nathan tells this nice story about a man that has all these sheep and steals a sheep from somebody who only has one. And, 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 and David's anger is burned up. He says, the man needs to die. And Nathan says, you're the boy. You're the man. <laughs> it is you. And now God speaks to him. Look at what God says here. Uh, whoops, I didn't get there. Second, first, second Samuel 12. Verse 7. Nathan said to David, You're the man, thus says the Lord God of Israel. I anointed you king over Israel and delivered you from the hand of Saul. I gave your master's house, that was Saul, and your master's wives into your keeping and gave you the house of Israel and of Judah. In other words, I gave you everything you had. Look at this. And if, there, if that had been too little, I also would have given you much more. In other words, why were you looking for some, to take somebody from something from somebody what, someone else? If you lack something, have I held anything back from you? Just ask of me. When you get under pressure, and the temptation is to either cheat a little bit or to get something by some other way other than by truth, that's because we don't believe God's going to give, provide for us. When we fudge things a little bit, it's because we don't think God's going to take care of us. God's saying, don't you think, look at what I've done for you. Look at what I've done for you. And if you wanted more, I'd have gladly given it to you. But why didn't you come to me to meet your needs instead of go taking somebody else's in, in things in your own hands? Wow. Wow. First Kings chapter 3. David, the son, David now has a son by Bathsheba, a second son, and his name is Solomon, and David now has died, and Solomon, his son, has become king. First Kings chapter 3. And God, Solomon has performed, has now been anointed to be king, and verse 5, 2 Samuel 3, verse 5. At Gibeon, the Lord appeared to Solomon in a dream by night and said, Ask what shall I give you? So God's saying, what do you want? Kind of like when Abram came to God and said, what do I get? And Solomon said, you've shown great mercy to your servant David, my father, because he walked before you in truth and righteousness and uprightness of heart with you. You've continued this great kindness for him and you've given him a son to sit on his throne as it is this day. Now, O Lord, my God, you have made your servant king instead of my father David, and I'm just a little child. Not literally, but that's how he was in his own sight. I do not know how to go out 
or how to come in. That's the heart of a leader God can work with. Therefore, give your servant me an understanding heart to judge your people. So what he's saying is, I recognize that you put me in charge of your people. And I am not adequate in my own self to lead them. So I need you to give me your wisdom so that I can lead your people. That's my prayer almost every day. Because God has entrusted your spiritual growth and purpose and destiny to me as a shepherd. And in myself, I am totally inadequate to do that. But my confidence is, because he loves you and you're his people, and I recognize that I don't know what to do, that he gives me the wisdom, and he does. And as long as I maintain my heart that way, he will. The challenge comes when a leader begins to think they're his people, and he does know how to lead them. So he's in a great place. Verse 8. And your servant is in the midst of your people whom you have chosen, a great people too numerous to be numbered or counted. Therefore, give to your servant to me an understanding heart that I may discern between good and evil for who is able to judge this great people of yours. So God says, whatever you want... I'll give you. And what he says is, I recognize the position you put me in and how inadequate I am. What I want more than anything is your wisdom to lead your people. Look how God responded to that. We're talking about God's character now. Verse 10, And the speech pleased the Lord that Solomon had asked this thing. Then God said to him, because you ask this thing. Remember, we're looking at, you know, does God give us just what we need? Or is God's heart the heart of lavishing and abundance? We're going to see that example here. Because you've asked this thing and have not asked for long life for yourself, nor have you asked for riches for yourself, nor have you asked the life of your enemies, but you've asked for yourself understanding to discern justice... In other words, that's what you asked. You could have asked for all those things for yourself, but you didn't. Instead, you asked for wisdom to lead my people. Verse 12, Behold, I have done according to your words. In other words, what you've asked, I've done. See, I've given you a wise and understanding heart, so that there's not been anyone like you before, nor there shall anyone arise you after. And also, I have given to you what you have not asked both riches and honor, that there may shall be not anyone like you among the kings all your days. So if you walk in my ways and keep my statutes and commandments as your father David walked, then I will lengthen your days. In other words, God's saying this. Because you asked for what was in my interest first, because your heart is humble before me, and you asked for what was necessary and best for the people I'd entrusted to you, and you, I'm going to give it to you. But I'm going to give you much more. I'm going to give you all the things you could have asked for and didn't. Wow. 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 
Is God holding back? Oh, no. Well, how come I don't? Well, that's, you need to find out. It starts with realizing God's not holding back. It's not because God's saying, mm, much more, much more, much more. Well, let's turn to the New Testament. We'll just start there, and then we'll have to pick up here next week. Let's go to Matthew 6. This is all Old Testament. This is all Old Testament. This is, this is not God's children. This is God's chosen people, but the covenant we have were His children. Matthew chapter 6. Very familiar verses. But I'll, there's a particular phrase in here I want you to see. Starting in verse 25. Therefore I say unto you, do not worry. Oh, we could dwell there for a while. About your life, what you'll eat or what you'll drink or your body, what you're going to put on it. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather in the barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? Now, we live in a society that's trying to value animals above man. And that's not just a political, that's not just a trend. There is underneath that a very definite force and purpose to bring man down to a level of value equal or underneath the animals. When in the Word of God, we're more valuable. We're the only one thing created in His image. Which of you, by worrying, can add one cubit or one bit to your stature? Why do you so worry about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field. So he started by looking at the birds of the air. They don't sow or reap. They don't have, you know. But your father feeds them. Now he's not saying you don't have to work. <laughs> he's talking about worrying. So don't worry about your clothing. Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow, yet they neither toil nor spin. Yet I say to you, even Solomon, we just looked at him, in all his glory was not arrayed or dressed like one of these. Now look at this. Now if God so clothes the grass of the field which is today and tomorrow is thrown away in the oven. Now it's a little hard this time of year, although foliage time, although we've not really had the foliage this year that we've used to having. But just think of the springtime. Or even the foliage time when you see beautiful colors. And in the springtime, the gorgeous flowers that come out. And how beautiful they are, you know. You just look at them. I've got some beautiful flowers. And I look at them, you know, we do. And I'm thinking, you know, but they're going to be gone in a couple of days. And what's God, why do you do that? Why, why, do, why, do you, why do you make something so beautiful and it may only last a, a week or so? Because you see, God has an infinite supply. We look at that like, oh my goodness, what are we going to do to get more? God. And he says, look at them. See, when he says look, he means think about them. Meditate on them. Remember how he took, he took Moses, Abraham out and said, look at the stars? He didn't say, oh, oh yeah, that's right. No, he said, meditate on them. Think about them. Wow. Because there's something I want you to see. Wow, look how numerous they are. So when he says, look at the lilies of the field, that's what he wants us to do. Think about that. Think about how beautiful they are. Think about how they just come up every year. And they just, they're there to, to satisfy your sense of beauty and desire. 
And then this time of year, usually, we get that beautiful foliage. People come from all over to see our foliage. The beautiful bright red and oranges and those trees and just marvel at, oh, isn't that gorgeous? And it's gone. God wants you to meditate on that. Because God's saying if He'll make something so beautiful and so precious and so glorious that's here one day and gone the next. Look at the lesson. Remember, just as Abraham, yet look at something in nature and then God spoke the spiritual principle to him. Now, if God so closed the gra- verse 30, so gra- closed the grass of the field today and tomorrow is thrown in the oven, how will he not much more? 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 If he takes care of them, I've never yet come out in my yard and heard the bushes going, oh. I don't know what we're going to I don't know whether we're going to have flowers on us today. This year, I don't know what we're going to do. I've never yet driven by a field of lilies and heard them say, Oh, I don't know if we're going to produce any. I don't know. They just, God produces it through them. How much more? That's the lesson Jesus is teaching here. How much more? How much more? Because remember, he's telling them why they shouldn't worry. He's saying, if God takes care of nature, and you're infinitely more valuable to him, then how much more will he take care of you? How much more? After all these things, the Gentiles eagerly seek For your heavenly Father knows that you need these things. Earlier in this chapter, he says, Don't you know your Father knows what you need before you ask? Your heavenly Father knows. Your heavenly Father. He's God, but when it comes to your needs, He's your Father. Your Father knows you need these things. Your Father knows You need these things. But what are we to do? But seek ye first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. God's not sitting in heaven looking at your needs. First of all, scratching His head wondering, I don't wonder what we're going to do. Unless He's looking at you saying, I wonder how I'm going to get this to you. He knows your need, which means He's aware of you, studying you, involved in your life, because He cares about you. That's what it says earlier in this chapter. Knows your need, is prepared to meet your needs infinitely more than He provides the needs of nature. Then how do we receive it? Seek ye first. Put Him first. All these things we read in the Old Testament, if you will be diligent to obey the voice of the Lord your God and do what is right in us. If you will put Him first. When you put Him first, and if you're worrying, 
He's not first. He said that, I didn't. If you're worrying, He's not first. If you're worrying, you don't believe He's going to take care of you. Because if He's going to take care of you, why would you worry? I want to end with this thought, just to plant in your mind, question to take home with you. To look at your life and ask yourself, how do I see God? Not in church, where we'd all say, oh yeah, amen, He's much more. What is the inner attitude you have about Him in the issues that are in your life right now? Whether it's family issues, children that aren't where they're supposed to be, grandchildren that aren't where they're supposed to be, whether it's your finances, whether it's a job, whether it's just your marriage, whatever the, the, the issues in your life are right now, how do you see God in relation to that? Do you see God as able? Do you see God as willing to deliver and to heal and to solve? And if so, how much? Is He a God that's much less to you? Or you see God who is much, much, much more. I tell you what the Word of God says. He's a much more God. We need to renew our minds to begin to think the way the Word says to think about Him. Let's pray. Father, we thank You so much for Your Word. We come right now and choose to believe what your word says and not what we may have been taught before, not what we may think about you from our own experiences and our own family relationships or our own parents or teachers, but we choose to believe about you based on what your word says because that's what you want us Today we've continued seeing example after example where instead of holding back and being, being cautious, you were a God that blesses, a God that with, of abundance, a God who's generous, a God who's not holding back. We've begun to see that we are the ones, Lord, who limits what you can do in our lives. So we pray, Father, as we... Prepare to go forth into our week that lies ahead, that only you know what's in this week that lies ahead. You've already gone into this week ahead of us, and you've prepared a way for us. Father, help us to see your path through this week, because your path is a path of more than enough. Your path is a path that's large. Your path is a path of goodness and greatness. Help us to see you circumstances of our lives and what you really want to do for us and what you really want to do through us. Thank you for that grace in Jesus' name.